My name's Cutter Calloway, and I'm Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Fuller Studio. Welcome to TV and Theology, an audio series in which we construct a theology of television to help viewers more fully engage with the power and meaning of TV. This season, I talk with TV writer and my co-author, Dean Batali. Welcome back to week two of our Theology and TV conversation with Cutter Calloway and Dean Batali. Uh, We are interested in being thoughtful uh, Christian people when it comes to our engagement with television. And uh, in our last episode, we started talking a little bit about how pervasive television is in the contemporary world, how um, Dean made a great point. I thought that uh, for some shows, depending on your age, uh, you've been with them, tracking with these characters for maybe half your life. Um, And so... Uh, I guess uh, I guess The Simpsons has been on television for half yeah, my yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. So whatever age it, I just read yesterday. It's the the longest running, you know, multiple different categories. The longest scripted, the longest yep. animated, the longest sitcom. Um, mm. So it's in its twenty sixth season, which is mind blowing uh, to, to begin with. Started in eighty. Uh, that would be 89, I think. I anyway, think it, was it was 89, yeah. It was set against the Cosby show on Thursday nights when right. it first aired. So um gives you a sense of what has changed since then. Um, but uh, one of the things that, that we'll keep hitting on um, in terms of how TV is made and, and, and us understanding how to understand a, a TV show, how to interpret it, how to identify where the core of its power and meaning uh, resides, has to do with understanding a little bit about the process of making TV. And one of the great things I've learned from Dean is uh, what it looks like to be in the TV writer's room and how collaborative that process is. Um, so, Dean, say a little bit about uh, TV as collaboration or TV writing as collaboration. Yeah, and it really is different than, you know, we, we tend to think of the artist as a solo figure, as a painter or a novelist, a playwright. And certainly plays become collaborative, films become collaborative, even though there's generally one screenwriter, although many films have more than one screenwriter over the course of their lives. Especially if they're bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But television, it actually, it germinates from a group. I mean, the pilot is often written by one person, but television staffs are generally anywhere from 7 to 15, sometimes 22 writers. Roseanne, at its height, I think is famous for having 27 writers at one time. It's all extremely collaborative. All those names that you see rolling by at the beginning, story editor, co-producer, supervising producer, executive producers, those are all writers on the show. And we all participate in the breaking of the story, the coming up with the story idea, and then working on how the story is going to be told, one person generally goes and writes the script, but then everybody's notes per- are given to the script. By the time there's a lot of television shows, Big Bang Theory writes every show in the room, in the writer's room, where the where the work actually takes place. There's never any solo writer going off to write the script. They say, "Here's the story we're going to tell," and then they all start pitching ideas and jokes. There's a showrunner who's kind of formulating everything, getting it down, but everybody is contributing at once. So it's all everybody's talents and everybody's worldviews. Um, being put into this one script. Hour-long shows are very similar. I mean, all these notes come together. Again, all the stories are broken. Once the characters are created by the person who created the show, which again is kind of a solo job, but the stories are told collaboratively and all the, uh, the, the character development is generally the conglomeration of everybody's given their ideas together. 
and then the showrunner decides which which way he or she wants to go with the stories and which way he or she wants to go with the characters. But it really is a group effort. And one of the biggest, everybody asks, well, how do I become a television writer? The biggest thing you should have on your resume is plays well with others because you have to be able to get along with everybody. You have to be able to argue your point of view and also compromise. It gets really interesting as we move into talking about theology because what if you're the lone um, believing voice in the room? Or what if you're the lone leftist voice or conservative voice in the room? If you're just going to always be pounding your fist and saying, this is the way I want it to be, you're not going to last very long mm -hmm. in there. So you have mm -hmm. to kind of get to this compromise. Although, again, it's the showrunner who has final say. So it's his or her worldview that generally ends up on the screen, but it's contributed to by everybody else in the room, the writer's room. Do you know, um, you've written mostly uh, half-hour sitcoms, right? Yeah, Is I was on that 70s show for seven years, and then uh, other sitcoms in and around. I worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of as a detour from my half-hour career for a couple of years. Yeah, Buffy was an hour? Right? Yeah, it was yeah. an hour long. Yeah. Although we actually, I was writing with a partner at the time. We got hired on that show based on a half-hour comedy, a half-hour children's comedy script <laughs> we'd written for a show <laughs> called The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Oh, I love that show. Which actually got us the Buffy. I, I would say they're kind of DNA linked, yeah. those two shows, because huh. of how dialogue-driven huh. they are. But it was that uh, script that got us Buffy, and I've kind of gone on to both kinds of shows. Well, part of what I ask, is there um, uh, a big difference in how that collaborative process works with a drama versus a sitcom? Well, yeah, and there's actually a bigger difference in the kind of people that write half hour and the uh. kind of people that write hour long. Comedy is much more collaborative. Hour long, um, uh, hour long scripts. The, the the stories are broken together, but then the scripts are written more a little individually, and then notes are given on them. But a half hour script with my name on it may not even have any more of my dialogue in it by the time it hits the screen because we've gone through rewrites and run throughs and fixing it. Whereas an hour long script, you tend to get a little more of your material on the air, and you know. Hour-long scripts tend to be deeper. Hour-long shows tend to be deeper mm -hmm. from a meaning point of view, from a theological point of view. It's hard to get real meaning in half hour. I mean, even in the court, you know, what kind of meaning is there in that 70s show? Well, I will argue mm -hmm. there's a lot of meaning yeah. in there, but I think there's a lot more meaning in a show like Lost or Breaking Bad yeah. or The Americans or Homicide or something like yeah. that. Um, now, you know, you can go into shows like M.A.S.H., that did have certainly a lot more meaning, even something like The Office, I think actually gets into more empathy and more meaning and more worldview even than certain kinds of shows. But yeah, there is a difference. Mm -hmm. And there's especially a difference in the kinds of writers. Hour-long writers, I think, tend to be more thoughtful. I'm going to get all in trouble from <laughs> uh -huh. all my half-hour and, and writers. But ha half-hour writers tend to be a little more cynical, mm -hmm. a little more angry. Um, I would argue a little more broken than hour-long writers. And hour-long writers mm -hmm. tend to be a little more thoughtful uh, uh, about life and the hour-long rooms I've been in have had a more variety of worldviews of people mm. in them with different kinds of experiences. Half-hour writers are a little bit, uh, a little bit more, uh, well, broken is what huh, I. That's really back interesting. To. <laughs> I, I've not heard you say that before. Yeah. Um, part of what is interesting about that to me is, I think, as a well, as a person that writes most of his stuff by himself. I mean, I, I get feedback and stuff, but it really is, uh, you know, the the icon of the theological scholars, you know, like alone in your room. Um, it's, it's hard to understand. I have, I have a sort of supreme control over what I'm communicating. Right. Um, and even if someone gives me feedback, I still control whether or not I, I take it or right. you know, make those revisions. 
Um, so it is, it's kind of hard for me to think about, um, and I think anyone would struggle of whether you're preaching, whether you're leading, whatever the, whether you're doing evangelism or just some, uh, an NGO, like you all have sort of a, a message that you want to communicate yeah. in life. Um, and we tell stories to do that. And I, I think that probably a lot of people would struggle and I, I would too, if I'm being honest with how and what are you communicating collaboratively? You know, yeah. so maybe the showrunner is the final say. Well, keep in mind, by the way, that there's also the network in the studio yeah. above that. So the showrunner decides what stories he or she wants to tell, how they're going to be told. But it is the network in the studio that are actually paying the price. So yeah. they're the uh, they're the pope over Michelangelo's yeah. Sistine Chapel ceiling, right? Uh, they're the ones who say this is going to go or yeah. not. So even if it's a, a incredibly thoughtful, profound uh, exploration of the human condition, if they don't think it's going to, you know make money. Yeah. Uh, it's or probably sell enough. Or it has to sell offend, enough Pepsi. Or offend the wrong crowd, right. the right crowd. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so the the sort of theological framing uh, of this and, and why I get to the communication part is um, part of what we're going to talk about is communication. So TV is a, a communication technology yeah. and most of what is communicated are narratives. I mean, there's other, there's news, we'll get to some of that. Um, there's live events, etc. But by and large, we're talking about um, narrative programming. Um, a, a really great, um, uh, article on, uh, early Christian communication, uh, comes from a guy named Todd Johnson. He actually works at Fuller and, uh, wrote an article called, uh, groanings too deep for words. And essentially he was saying, um, asking the question of how did Augustine think about communication, what that is. And there's this great quote I'll read for you to kind of set this up, um, and, and have Dean sort of riff on it. Uh, Todd says, Augustine believed that before humanity's fall from grace, we were able to communicate directly with one another and with God. So it, was, it wasn't mediated, it was immediate. But since the fall, we have been incapacitated by our sinful state and now are limited to the confines of our bodies. Now all we have with which to communicate are songs, words, gestures, gestures, and sounds. In this way, Augustine stretched his rhetorical training and its emphasis on words and broadened language to horizons beyond the verbal to symbols, gestures, and sounds, all of which are vehicles for communication between human beings and between humanity and God. So Todd makes a great point here, um, and I encourage you to read that full article uh, on Augustine, um, because he says, uh, Augustine says, on the one hand, prior to the fall, we were in immediate communication with God. We, we, we basically, I, I would say it's almost like telepathic, you know, like we just, you were there. Post-fall, it was all mediated. It was it was uh, at a distance. It was one step away from direct communication. Um, but because of that, we then naturally, with each other and with God, had to communicate through other means. So um, our language, our gestures, our bodies, um, our poetry, our stories, all of this um, gets back to how do we take a thought in my brain and transmit it to another human being or to God? Um, it's a pretty fascinating thing that really only humans can do is sort of think of a concept and translate it. Um, and we do that most often uh, through stories. Yeah. The, the good of that is that it, it, it reclaims the value of stories and storytelling. It says that this is a, a really profoundly theological means to communicate. The negative, in my view, of, of Augustine saying that is um, that in, in a lot of ways it says that are telling stories is a part of the fall. Like it's, it's, it's fallen, it's broken inherently. I'm, I don't really love that idea that <laughs> telling stories and using signs and symbols of, of TV or whatever kind of storytelling meeting we're talking about is a function of our brokenness. So uh, I'm, I'm there with Augustine on one point, but it gets back to this idea of communication. And um, what is it that we're communicating? 
uh, Christians, uh, especially evangelical Christians, are very concerned about what is that piece of information I'm communicating? And if I can get it clear enough and precise enough and transmit it to somebody, uh, and if they can capture that, then that somehow is the gospel preached. That yeah. somehow is life transformed. What, what are your thoughts on well, that? Well, there's a couple things, because it's not just evangelicals who think that way. Correct. I actually think that all writers are trying to uh, present a point uh, in their art. I, I, I actually am the position... I am in the position that all art is propaganda and that that's not necessarily a bad thing um, because I think that uh, Handel's Messiah is propaganda and I think that the Sistine Chapel is propaganda and I think those that's pretty good art. But um, I, it's interesting. I think what Augustine is saying, uh, well, one point is I wonder if as we get farther away from the fall, if our art is getting more desperate in trying to reach God, if that's what he's kind of saying. I think most art actually is trying to communicate with other people. We're trying to say things to other people. My position is that artists are arrogant, and I will confess to being <laughs> the same thing. We think that your time— You're the most humble guy I know. <laughs> thank you, yeah. We think that your—you know, a painter thinks that your time, that your visual space is worth his or her painting. And an artist or a writer—you know, a playwright thinks your time, your two hours, is worth— is their their point of view is worth your two hours of time. Every time I write a TV episode, I'm saying you're going to listen to me for 44 minutes or 22 minutes. There's an arrogance or that, that I think I have enough to be said. Uh, I don't think enough artists actually admit to our arrogance hmm. and that we think we know how the world should be, but we do, and we try to present it through our art. So I think that, um, I, I do think we're trying to communicate with other, whether or not we could communicate with God at that level that Augustine is saying may be true, but I think that um, there is some art that I think is trying to communicate with the eternal, whether the whether they're believers or not, trying to ter uh, communicate with the divine. But I think art is person to person more so. Here's my worldview. Here's the way I see the world. I want you to look at the world the way I see the world for this next 22 minutes, two hours, or 11 years, if you're uh, fortunate enough to have a series that runs that long. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really good point about uh, how when you start moving away from the fall, how, how much desperate uh, yeah. how, or how desperate is that sort of longing? Um, elsewhere, Augustine uh, is sort of famous for saying, um, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, God. Yeah. Um, and so there's a sense in which, yeah, he and he is a Neoplatonist, which is sort of a philosophy that says everything started with this one and kind of like a drop of a stone in a, uh, in a, in a pond sort of rippled out from yeah. there and is all longing to return. So yeah. the farther away you get from that source of good goodness and truth, um, the more desperate you get. Yeah. Um, and, but at the same time, the less clearly related um, is that is that too. Well, and look at where our culture is right now as we separate from one another in terms of technology and screens and how much time we actually spend with one another. And look at, let's talk specifically about television now. Look how television is trying to say, look at me, look at me, look at me in terms of the content, in terms of cables pushing the boundary. It's hard to get thoughtful, quiet television <laughs> on TV nowadays, and some of that might be a little bit as we get yeah, farther away from the fall in terms of trying to attract attention. Hmm. Um, and that that note on on technology, maybe we'll we'll end. And what does it communicate, and how um, does it mediate our communication? Um, we'll come to here in a couple episodes um, because that is one of the questions we'll be asking: Is that a helpful thing or a hurtful thing? Um, is it or is it both? That the farther away we get physically from each other um, is also the same means by which we're able to communicate more stories to people, you know, in a broader context. So 
With that thought in mind, we will wrap up uh, episode two. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio.